Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be hearing from touring drummers, guys that are still out there on the road, playing with bands every day on tour. So let's jump right into it. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Welcome back, everybody, to the Music History Project podcast. And uh, today, wow, as Mike just said, we're going to be hanging out with some touring drummers. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us to reflect back on some of the influences of these drummers, how they got to where they are, and of course, some of the tales of these amazing artists that they've been backing up. Uh, today, we're going to be hearing from the drummers who have backed up such people as Michael Jackson and Missy Elliott and Kenny Loggins, Chicago, uh, just an amazing group of uh, drummers that uh, have a great perspective that I hope that we can all glean some fun stories stories and interesting comments as well as some influence and maybe some inspiration. Yeah, definitely a great and fun podcast today. Um, we're going to be hearing from Mark Shulman, Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat, Tris Emmadine, and Willie Bam Bam Parker. And first up, we're going to be hearing from Mark Shulman, who's played with acts such as Foreigner, Cher, Sheryl Crow, Stevie Nicks, but currently is on tour with Pink. And we sat down and talked to him about how he got into drumming and some of his favorite music stores and influences uh, as a drummer. So let's hear from Mark Shulman. Well, my earliest musical memory really is the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I know a lot of people talk about that, but I was three. Standing there with my family, standing in front of the television, I saw John, Paul, and George, and I just freaked out. Then I saw Ringo, and I, something resonated deep inside of me. I, you know, I just saw like the, you know, that big beautiful nose and the smile and the swishy hand. And then I saw all the screaming girls and I said, that's it. I want that. And then, uh, I want to play drums. And my mother said, no, can't you play a nice instrument like your brother Randy? He plays violin. Olivier. So, uh, I ended up playing cello. So I grew up playing cello and then I get a little drum lesson at the end of every cello lesson because my cello teacher was my godfather. And eventually my parents broke down and they could not deny me my passion and I got my first drum set at nine years old and that was it. And I give them so much credit because my room was next to theirs. So they endured, you know, I probably built, I probably had my, my 10,000 hours of Gladwell by the time I was 12, you know. Uh, um, so did you, did you go through a music program at school? Actually not. I grew up playing in bands. Uh, I, I started, I played my first professional gig when I was 12. Played all through high school, bar mitzvahs, weddings, parties, actually made money. And then I, I studied a little bit with Henry Belson, a little bit with Mel Zelnick, who you wouldn't know. Henry Belson is Louis's brother. And then when I was 17, I started studying with Freddie Gruber for a couple of years. And then I, I've changed things around. And then I learned more about drumming when I started teaching at 19 years old. But I always played in bands. I also studied production took some production classes, so I was always the one producing my bands, and I was always in studios, and so I just really 
mainly learned from uh, knowing how to read music from cello and then studying with Freddie and then just building it up from them. And then I went through a Zappa phase and got really into, you know, nested rhythms and seven over threes and, and all that stuff. So I kind of went through the gamut and I played in big bands and, and I played in orchestras. So I kind of, I learned through a lot of experience. Uh, was there a local music store that you frequented? Well, Music Stop was a store owned by Mel Zelnick, who was a big band drummer. That's where Henry Belson taught out of. And that's where Freddie Gruber originally taught out of in the 60s, I believe. Oh. It was in Canoga Park, California. I'm an actual valley boy. Ha ha. Born and raised in L.A. One of the few entertainment professionals. So once you got into drums, who were the drummers that uh, inspired you? Everybody. But my big inspirations, obviously, Buddy Rich, Ringo, um, Floyd Sneed from Three Dog Night, Bobby Columbi from Blood, Sweat and Tears were big influences. And then um, I got into uh, you know, Caro and I got into Gad and I got into Vinny and I really started listening to everybody. I love Jack DeJeanette. Um Got into listening to Tony Williams and Miles Davis and um, I always loved the pop bands as well. So I really have always been, considering myself a pop drummer, but I've also always been on the fringe and listened to a lot of crazy stuff. I got really into Zappa, as I said, for a while. Um, so I've, I've allowed, I allow every drummer to influence me. I believe that it's all about having big ears. And rather than closing myself off to somebody, you know, I was a snob when I was a kid. I didn't like Charlie Watts. I thought, ugh, Charlie Watts sucks. And then at one point, you know, I started giving a lot of drum clinics and I said, you know what, Charlie Watts is the greatest drummer in the world for the Rolling Stones. Imagine Dave Weckl on the Rolling Stones. It wouldn't work. So that's when I realized it's all about the chemistry and everybody has their own unique feel and you sit 10 drummers down and they all play there's going to be minute differences in the way they feel and the way they approach, the way they make the drums sound. So everybody has value. What were you doing just prior to joining Pink? Just prior to joining Pink, let's say I joined Pink 13 years ago, which would make it, oh, I was playing with Foreigner off and on. Played with Foreigner off and on and played with Cher. So Pink and Cher are, are managed by the same management company. And I also did a stint with Velvet Revolver. Actually, right before Pink, I spent the summer with Velvet Revolver in 2005 because Matt Sorum had broke his hand and I played Ozfest. Um, and I was playing with some very big Japanese artists, a very big German artist, Udo Lindenberg, uh, one of the biggest Japanese artists, uh, two Japanese artists, Himuro, and then uh, Ikichi Yazawa, who is like the biggest Japanese artist of all time. And I was still playing with uh, Billy Idol... And I stopped playing with Billy Idol in 2001. I was playing with Stevie Nicks, 2001 to 2002, going back and forth with Cher. I played, then I played with, um, Simple Minds. Um, and I did the record Good News from the Next World and did the tour in 2005. So I was going back and forth. I'm very fortunate. I played with a lot of amazing people. Um, and just prior to Pink, I don't exactly remember what I was doing, but I was playing, always doing something. So Foreigner, Cher, uh, these are all very, different uh, musical acts. Yes. Uh, so you have to be a versatile drummer. Where does that versatility come from? Versatility comes from really loving all these different styles of music and being able to draw from all the influences. And I remember when I got the Foreigner gig, when I auditioned, you know, Mick Jones said, you know, you, you have the feel of a, of a funk drummer, but you hit like a rock drummer. And I thought that was an extraordinary compliment. But I like to think of myself as having the role and the understanding of ghost notes and just that feel and that space and the groove of having, you know, my first road gig was with Brenda Russell, an R&B artist. Then I played with uh, 
uh, Jeff Lorber Fusion, and I played. I did a lot of uh, smooth jazz gigs and R&B gigs, and then I kind of and Bobby Caldwell. Then I moved into the rock element after that. So I kind of always really loved funk and groove music and I love the Beatles so I could sort of take it and then at a point I really worked on you know getting my uh my uh trajectory up higher and really giving bigger energy so I I I took the old sort of acting methodology of playing to the person in the back row and I still do. Like when I, I look at an audience, I look at everybody and I look at everybody in back, everybody in front. I'm not just staring at the people in front because I realize my gig is to really be able to put that energy out and hit the person in the back row. So they are not only hearing it, they're seeing it and they're feeling it. They get that kinetic feeling. Uh, you're not, uh, only a musician, performer, uh, producer. You're also an educator. What's the number one thing that you try to get across to people that you're speaking to? Well, I do a lot of high-end corporate speaking gigs. I call myself an activational speaker, not a motivational speaker, because anybody that's on stage needs to be motivating. That's just part of it. I motivate people to take action. And it's my new speech is based on this philosophy created by Dr. Jim Samuels, who's the co-writer of my second book, which is all about the power of attitude. Everything we do begins with attitude. And what we, what I started to realize is that, you know, we can't control what happens to us, but we always have the power to control our attitudes about what happens to us. And I talk about shifting our attitudes because our attitudes are where we're looking from. It's our point of view. And that gives us enormous power to know that consciously we can actually shift this because our attitudes are what drive our behaviors. And one attitude can drive many behaviors and our behaviors will determine the consequences of our lives. So everything we do begins with attitude. And if you want to reverse engineer it, you look at the consequence you want to create, the outcome you want to create, you get very specific about it. Think about what kind of behavior you would need to cultivate and generate to create that out, that, that output, that consequence. And then look and see what is the attitude that I'm going to need to sustain to drive that behavior, to drive that consequence. And you apply this to anything in your life, I guarantee you, you will improve your performance and you will realize that you actually have more control over your consequences than you believed. Yeah, that's a very handy way of thinking for musicians because musicians are on the road and uh, they get tired yep. um, and the performance level is up and down and uh, they're feeling happy one day and sad the next. Yeah. So as a It happens, we're human, it happens. Yeah. But what I, what my inherent belief system is that every single note that I play matters. Every nuance, every space, every combination of rhythms matters. Because if every note matters, I'm driving that every note with purpose. And the moment I attach purpose to every note, I become more passionate about every note. I mean, I played So What by Pink 800 times. The 800th time is just as pur- purposeful and passionate as the first time. Because that's the way I treat it. When I get on stage, I take every nuance very, very seriously, but lovingly and joyfully and playfully. And that's how I can keep on doing it. Yeah. I'll never forget one day I, 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 you know, I was out with Foreigner off and on for many years and we were in the middle of a big tour and I was sitting there thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to go out and play. Feels like the first time hundreds of times. It's like God's big joke, right? And then a couple days later, I went on stage and I realized, wait a minute. I looked at that audience and I realized, you know, for them, 
it really is their first time. So how dare I have a negative attitude and deprive them of that first time experience when I could just attach purpose and passion to every note and recreate the first time experience and everybody wins. So that's how I approach my playing. And that's why after 31 years, I'm still playing with world-class artists. I'm playing with the coolest female artists on the planet. You mentioned so what? Uh, tell me about the recording session for that and your drum parts. I didn't record anything. I, Everything's programmed Okay. on her records. What's beautiful about being a part of this band and being a part of her world is, certainly from my standpoint, I played on a couple of things that didn't make it on the record, but 99.9% .9 of the, the music is programmed drums and not even a lot of guitar stuff necessarily. Then we get the Pro Tools stems live and then we evolve into what we play live. And I put real drum parts. Justin puts these blazing guitar parts on. We all add our own nuances and we evolve the songs. And we love that. And she loves that. I'll never forget when we were rehearsing for the last tour, uh, the manager said, you know, she says she wants things to stick a lot, you know, to the record. So um, that song, What About Us? You know, the drum part is... <laughs> That's it. Right? So he said, you know, learn it just like the record. And then we had already learned it like owning it. I was playing all these Tom things and Justin was really playing the guitars really heavy. So she comes in and first we play it like the record. And you're looking at her going, oh, yeah. She's like, okay. And I actually stood up at the drum set. I said, we have another version where we actually have, you know, Put, put more of ourselves, you know, humanize it more. The drums are bigger, the guitars are crunchier. We play that for her and she's like, yeah, that's it. So she loves the evolution live because when you're playing live, it isn't about just recreating the exact record. It's about evolving the music and moving the audience to another level. And she loves that and we love that and everybody wins. So once again, that was Mark Shulman, uh, known as the drummer for Pink. And these are all touring drummers we're hearing from today, but we are currently still in a pandemic in the year 2020, and all of these guys are not currently on tour um, due to the pandemic, and it's it's really a struggle for some of them, and our hearts just go out to the entire live sound industry. Um, just what they're going through right now is pretty tough, but hopefully we'll get to see them back on stage real soon. Yeah, our, we're remaining very optimistic uh, for their sake and for, of course, our sake as the audience. And I think that's one of the reasons that motivated the team here to do this podcast is to showcase how important live music is and how quickly we hope we can return to it. Very well said, Mike. And um, thanks to Ashley for outlining this program. I think it's a special one uh, because, you know, all of us have felt this ama amazing jolt that is how important and critical live music is to all of us now that we don't have it. So let's hope that by the time you are hearing this podcast, maybe things are getting back to normal. We certainly hope so. In the meanwhile, I love the idea of focusing on some of these guys and uh, their amazing background and career. The next one up is a gentleman that we have featured before on this podcast, but I love this segment that we're going to be focusing on. It's Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffitt. 
Well, my father played cornet, um, my mother told me, uh, before they got married. And he wasn't really, really good, but he was into music and could play a little bit. So, But uh, it was one day at the post office where he worked um, as supervisor, a friend of his, um, told him about his sons were into music to keep him out of trouble. So he thought it was a great idea for me and my two other sibling brothers, which were older than I was, to get into music to keep us our minds on something creative instead of being out there in the streets. So back there was the rough 60s and late 50s and 60s, so out in South and New Orleans. So um, he came home and asked us if we want to play music. And we said, love to. We knew music, but we didn't know much about it. But, you know, So he asked each one of us what we wanted to play. Of course, my older brother, oldest brother, Oren, he was first, and uh, he got to cho choose. He said, I want to play bass guitar. And my dad said, okay, great, great. And he said, but I want you to play, see, I want you to play saxophone too. So he learned both. And then my second brother came up and he said, well, what do you want to play, Adrian? And my brother said, I want to play guitar. And then I said, conveniently, man, oh, man I want to play guitar. They took the guitar. Man, I want to play guitar. No, that's so. And he, I said, I'm still saying guitar. My father said, well, Jonathan, what do you want to play? I said, I want to play guitar. And he said, no, no, we can't have all guitars in the family. You got to do something else, something different. And the only other thing I knew was drums. And I said, all right, I'll play drums. And I got stuck with drums. <laughs> <laughs> and my first lessons with a private teacher on snare drum uh, turned out to be really mind-opening and changing and learning coordination of the sticks and the rhythms and the rudiments. And I started liking it, finding something fascinating about challenging my brain and my mind about controlling my limbs and, and uh, working out these patterns and doing them, being successful at achieving them. And it started fascinating me. So I got more and more into it to see how good I can do or well I can to please my father at first, but then became to self-gratification to please me and see how good I can get at this. And it started on a snitter at six years old. Wow, that's really you cool. Know. You know, one of the things that Nam is always advocating for is music education. And since you had a teacher that helped you a little bit, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that experience, his, how that mm -hmm. was important to you. His name was Mylon Jones, and we used to go to his house on every every other Saturday night. And all three of us, and, and he, he knew everything. He taught for a school band, and he taught each one of us our respective instruments. So, um, and they would let me go first because I was the littlest, littlest, and I get sleepy. And by the time he used, in the beginning, they used to let me go last, and I would be so sleepy, falling asleep on the sofa, I couldn't do my lesson, so they let me go first. And then my other brothers afterwards. So that was on the Saturdays, every other Saturday. And to make sure we did, my dad was smart to make sure we did really good at the lessons, paid attention and accomplished what was necessary, uh, cause he was paying this guy money. There was a snowball stand right across, right on the corner from there that made incredible snowballs. We love snowballs down there. So our reward for doing good at that lesson is that if the teacher said you did good, you get a snowball. We loved it. So we was always attentive and doing out, uh, what he was trying to teach us. And um, I don't remember ever not getting a snowball because we wanted those snowballs, so we paid attention. <laughs> so that was how I started, but it was only one marching snare drum I had uh, at the time. And uh, then every uh, birthday after that, I get another piece of the set. Next birthday, in my seventh birthday, I got a bass drum and a cymbal. And uh, I loved the bass drum with that silver stripe, dark blue. And then uh, next birthday, and eighth birthday, I got two um, blue glitter sparkle drum toms. Norma, I think, was its company, Norma. And um, so then, uh, uh, nice birthday, I got the floor time. And I got two symbols with that, those two times. Then I got another symbol and the uh, floor time on the ninth birthday. Mm. By that time, at nine years old, I had a whole set. <laughs> and uh, each year, I had a whole year to develop incorporating another 
uh, uh, the rest of the kids, you know. So I think it was that when I got the bass drum, I got a hi-hat, too, so I could play everything. And then I got the toms in the full time, and I had a whole kit at night and started playing um, block parties, talent shows, and, and dances and stuff like that. And um, then it was at 10 years old. Our band was my brother's band, and, and my in another neighborhood family had all the kids play music. We joined forces and called ourselves the Cavaliers. And then at 10 years old, we started doing nightclubs because we were that good. So I started making money in music at 10 years old. And I've been making money in music since then. It's been my love and passion. And it was at one of those talent shows when I was nine years old at St. Augustine High School, a very popular high school down there, uh, very acclaimed. Uh, my brother was in a band, but um, he had switched to clarinet and sax. But anyway, he's in marching band. It's a marching 100 at the time. But we did a, a talent show there, and you know, I remember setting up my little kid. And uh, it was all mismatched drums. The other companies' names were all mismatched, different names. In fact, the full time didn't even want to put the name on it. It was like, <laughs> I didn't put no name. It was like, no name. So uh, we set up our drums on stage, and the kids in the auditorium was cheering and screaming. We hadn't even started playing yet. And I heard all the screaming from Cavaliers. I was calling different names. And, and I would put my symbol on. I could picture myself right now, this very scene, and put my symbols on and screwing the thing. And I looked around and said, I, you know, the screaming for us, we haven't even hit a note yet. I'll beat. And I said, I like this feeling, this gratification feeling. I want to feel this the rest of my life. And then I decided, this is what I, don't want, I want to do the rest of my life. I want to play drums. I want to be a musician. I like getting this feeling. People care about us and, and they receive us and they, um, they like what we do. And they, uh, they devote their devotion to us, you know. And something about that made you feel worth something. And I, I value that a lot. And it motivated me to carry on for us throughout my life. And and say, this is my main, you know, this is what I want to do all my life, my main thing. My father, of course, tried to say, well, you got to get the education, you got to get another job, that'll be a side passion, you know, something for a hobby. And I was like, no, I want to do this in my life. You know, I didn't dare tell him that because <laughs> he would say, what are you talking about? You're going to do what I say. But anyway, I said, my mind, I'm going to do this all my life. And I've been doing this all my life. And I just turned 65, November 17th. And um, I've been doing it for 40 years professionally. And um, what, what would that be, uh, 59 years playing since I got my first marching wow. snare drum. And I'm still feeling it. Like, I still feel it as strong as, as or more so, as the little boy who had two sticks and something to whack on and, and try to make some rhythm out of it. I still see, feel that newness of passion for drumming and for music. Love for music is, is creativity it's through God, you know, spirituality. Mm -hmm. That's what I love about it, spirituality. And then I uh, decided in 79, um, Early some night to drive to Los Angeles and give it a shot. Um, and, um, do a friend of mine helping me come out here. And Jermaine Jackson had heard me on, uh, one of our band's tapes that he was in with me and, uh, sent for me, so to speak. So came out and a meeting with him never really happened. A month and a half later, I ran into the music director for the Jacksons, who was a friend of mine from New Orleans, who used to always come to New Orleans when they played in town in the municipal auditorium and come visit my mother's house which was a block from his mother's house. We were in rival bands in New Orleans, but we always, you know, were friends. We wasn't competition where we hate each other. We were very close friends. His name was James McField. Became the Jackson music director. He said, Foot, if you ever, they call me Sugarfoot, so he called me Foot, if you ever come out to Los Angeles, look me up, here's my address, my phone number, and uh, Jackson brothers need to hear you and other people need to hear you. And then I took him up on his word as well and came out month and a half later, after the field meeting with Jermaine, which wound up happening way later in the career, 
I ran into uh, James and on a payphone in in L.A. and he just so happened to tell me that they uh, they didn't have the new a drummer now. They were looking for drummers, and I got to audition with the Jacksons, and they liked me. And uh, he extended actually a day because the, the end of the audition period was that day I met him. He extended to give me a chance, and I wound up being the drummer. Mm. So that was a that was a big highlight spotlight on my opportunity for the world to see me and hear me with a major recording artist who I was a fan of as well. Everybody was a fan of the Jacksons, you know, my, uh, the Jackson Five, I should say, right. and they just turned to the Jacksons. That's amazing. That's really cool. Was uh, did you um, when did you do? Uh, don't stop the music. Was that about that same time? <laughs> yeah, that was not short, shortly after that. Not so long after that, uh, doing the first tour with the Jacksons, which I joined the Jacksons and audition was February twenty first of nineteen seventy nine. I had three days to learn my first professional show and tour. Three only three days. I have no professional work <laughs> at all, so I had to cram it in and focus, concentration, and got it. Did my first show in Cleveland with Michael and their brothers, and he he called me to his room and he complimented me. He said nobody played for me like that. They said, well, "How did you know I was gonna make this move?" And you had the accent. Like that, I said, "I don't know. I can feel it." And he said, well, "When I spun around, and I stopped on the dime. How did you know when I was gonna stop?" I said, "I don't know. I was watching you close, and I could feel it." And then I said, "Man, maybe I messed up. I shouldn't have did that." I was like thinking, "Oh, I'm about to get fired and sent home, flying home." And then he said, "Well, at that time when I did this other move, and and then you hit the cymbal and snare at the same time, right on point. How did you know I was going to do that?" I said, I, "I keep my eye on you, and I thought it was great, and it'll give you good accent, sound effects to what you're doing." He said, "Hmm." He got quiet. I said, "Uh oh, here's my ticket home. I'm in trouble." I said, "I did all of this stuff trying to be too creative." And he said. Well, keep doing it. Keep doing it. I love it. I love it. Nobody's done that for me. He's like I said, I said, wow, okay, this is cool. <laughs> so the, the walk back to my room was much shorter than the walk to his room when you know you dread it, like, oh my God, we're in trouble. And it seemed like the hallway stretches out. <laughs> you finally get there, you're scared to knock, you go, doo, doo, doo. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, that was a great moment when he gave me my first professional com- compliment from Michael Jackson. And um, he said, you're our drummer, you're our drummer. Nobody has ever done that for me. And, and, and knew, you could, it's like you could feel me, you could read my mind. And I never had that before. So that made me feel like 10 billion bucks. So, you know, so anyways, that was a great moment for me. Um, and then from there on with the Jacksons, that first tour in 79 in the spring, I went to do the second tour in the fall, which was the Destiny album on both of those tours we were supporting. But Michael had dropped off the wall. So the second tour started uh, September 1st. Of all places in my hometown, New Orleans, I got to make my debut uh, live performance professionally in New Orleans. And it's all over the Internet, you know. Um, and that was called the Destiny Off the Wall Tour. And um, from there, other people would see me with the brothers and call me. And when I'm getting calls, Lana Ritchie and Patty Austin, and then Cameo in 82. My first two of 38 years were Cameo. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, and 82, then back with the brothers. And no, back with 82 was Cameo, then 83 was Cameo. Then the brothers with the Victory Tour. Then uh, Madonna was in the audience there, saw me, and told her manager, that's my drummer. And so in 85, I joined her for the Virgin Tour, first tour ever. And I wound up after that, right after that, doing the True Blue album, entire album. And then after that, I went to Jermaine Jackson. Mm-hmm. And then I went after that back to Madonna for the Who's That Girl tour in 87. Then I got a call from, I never dreamt of getting a call from Elton John. They call him Sir Elton John. And he said, I mean, he's following your career, all your career. He loves you, your work. He wants you to work for him. Elton John calls. I was shocked and like pleasantly shocked. 
So I wound up working with him in 88 and 89. Mm. Then after that, 89 with Elton, Madonna called back for the Blind Ambition Tour. And in the meantime, I had recorded the Like a Prayer album with her. And um, so I, I did the Two's That Girl album with her. Uh, I did True Blue and, and I did uh, also the Dick Tracy's album. And then after Madonna in 1990, I get a call from somebody who was backstage at the Elton concert, uh, George Michael in 91. I wound up doing a tour with him. Then Janet in 93, 94, those two years. Then Michael called me for his, uh, back for his solo tour in, in 96, 97, which case, when I was with Michael on Who's That Girl tour, uh, not Michael, with Madonna on Who's That Girl tour, Michael, had, I was scheduled to be Michael's music director on Bad Tour, but he pushed it back, so Madonna caught me. So I finally got to work with Michael Solo in 96, 97. Then I did his um, 2001 30th anniversary special. And then I was uh, scheduled to do, uh, did the rehearsals for This Is It, you know, which turned into that major motion picture film in 2009 with him. Got back. And all in between those, I'd go back to Cameo. So all in third, inserted between all of them shows, back to Cameo, some funk music. They're a prolific band. I love them. <clears throat> Miss them now. And um, so back to them. And then I did this. After that, I went to Cirque du Soleil, Michael Jackson Estate, um, Immortal World Tour. Mm. And then back to Cameo. <laughs> so uh, I did my last shows at Cameo last year, October. Wow. Yeah, so. That's amazing. Yeah, and, you know, very blessed. Mm. Uh, beyond the little boy's dream what was possible. You know, so I'm, I'm really thankful and grateful for the blessings of, that I've been able to experience life all around the world. Once again, that was Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat. Always good to hear from him. He has such a unique playing style and such good time. I think I would say he is the best pocket drummer I've ever heard. He just has perfect rhythm. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, we did an entire podcast episode just about Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat. Uh, that is episode 77 that you can find on our website, nam.org. Um, and you can also find his full video interview on nam.org. Uh, so that's namm.org slash library. Um, and we have all of our podcast episodes and the full oral history collection there. And coming up next, we are going to hear from Tris Imboden, who will share with us uh, some of the stories about growing up and the great influences that his parents had. Uh, one of my favorite little tidbits is that he mentions that his dad was the best dashboard drummer he ever heard. Uh, I think a lot of us can relate to that. Um, and then he's going to go into a bit of his career. So here is Tris. Even though neither of my parents were musicians per se, my mom uh, played piano and was fairly accomplished actually. And the only problem was she'd play only when depressed. So <laughs> I have this neuroses now. <laughs> Anytime I hear certain songs, it makes me cry because of my mom. I know she was depressed and used to play that one, you know. No, it's uh, actually, uh, it wasn't quite like that. She was very musical, as was my dad, who had a beautiful voice, uh, singing voice. My mom sang as well. Uh, and I always say that my dad was the best dashboard drummer I've ever heard because <laughs> driving the car, he was always on the dashboard playing along. And he was good, you know, too. So played all the right stuff. Yeah. Uh, so what was your introduction to music? What was your first instrument? Well, actually, uh, I knew at age five, as funny as this sounds, but I remember uh, 
I remember it so well, my dad had taken me to a parade uh, and this marching band had gone by. Uh, I think it was a 4th of July parade in Huntington Beach or something. And this marching band went by and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry when the drum section went by. It was like, I was so moved and never in my five years had I been that moved by anything. So I knew then that I'd be a drummer. But my first instrument was actually trumpet because there was no room in the drum section. Everybody wanted to play drums. So I started on trumpet uh, for a year, actually got to second chair, and then the, the band director knew that I was really a drummer at heart, so he moved me to the drum section. So at that moment, uh, was you knew that you had a, a love for music, but was that, the moment you also knew that that was going to be your career? I kind of did. It's, you know, it's it's strange, but I really kind of knew that. I just felt it, you know, in my bones. What about mentors along the way? Oh my God, well, uh, certainly on record, <laughs> there are many. Um, my my uh, family's home was always filled with everything from Miles Davis to to Elvis Presley and uh, so I listened to a lot of Brubeck and Joe Morello and all of that. Uh, as far as mentors along the way, I'm primarily self-taught actually until I, I realized, oh my God, you know, they're going to put a chart in front of me in the studio one of these days and I better get my reading together. So, so uh, um, I studied a little bit at, at Orange County Drum shop, which is no longer there with a guy named, uh, it's not with us anymore either, Bob, Bob Rate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so was that your main instrument store that you uh, frequented? Um, that and Manolo's music in Huntington Beach when I was much younger. I, we uh, won a battle of the bands, you know, when I was in high school in their parking lot and, and uh, they had all the great instruments there. So uh, yeah, it was probably, yeah. It was probably later on, once I was professional, it was Orange County Drum uh, drum Store. Yeah. So uh, once you started to get into drumming in a big way, who were the, uh, the musical heroes, the, the drumming heroes? Well, of course, the cliche, Buddy Rich, uh, but Gene Krupa, certainly, Sandy Nelson, um, uh, then all the... The surf band guys, you know, the Ventures, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, Mel something, I think. Uh, and from from there on, everybody. I listened to literally everybody. And my largest influence is probably in later years, at least when it came to funk and, and pop playing and that, uh, David Garibaldi, Steve Gadd, and jazz, Tony Williams and Alvin Jones and, you know, those guys. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Honk was your first real band. Oh, wow. You've done your homework. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you got onto a, a surf soundtrack? Yes, was yes. Was that the start of things for you? It actually was. And, and uh, we were not a surf band at all. Uh, but we knew the filmmaker, and he knew the band, and he knew we were good, and he knew that we were fairly creative, and that we could probably come up with a music for his film, which at the time was a revolutionary film. It was, uh, and actually it went on to be the largest selling uh, film of 16 millimeter of any kind to, to that 
date. Uh, actually, it was a, a, f a film called Five Summer Stories, and uh, and it was it was kind of interesting because uh, two of us in the band surfed, and we knew surf spots in Hawaii that he had filmed, and and surfers, specific surfers, and so we didn't see any of the footage or anything. Uh, he just described who was surfing where, and we two that surfed kind of tried to describe the mood to the other guys in the band. And, and so we just kind of wrote it without seeing any of the, uh, the film. And then when they put it together with the film, we were astonished. It just fit like a glove. And, and uh, to this day, people still, you know, love it. So, How yeah. has surfing helped with your music? Oh, well, drumming being a, a very physical thing, uh, it certainly has, has helped me in a cardiovascular sense. <laughs> also, probably the musculature involved. Uh, uh, I wave my arms around quite a bit when, <laughs> when, when surfing as well as playing, playing the drums. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I, that's a really good question. I wish I'd, I could think about that longer. Yeah. Because you a, there are a lot of surfers that are good musicians, like Kelly Slater. Exactly. Stephanie Exactly, yes, yeah. And Do uh, Donovan and uh, Frankenmeyer, I think is his last name, and yeah. many, yeah. And I lived in Hawaii for a while, and there was a lot of surfing musicians there too, real good ones. Yeah. When you... Uh, began playing with Chicago, you took over from uh, Danny, who yeah. had been with them, uh, he was the original drummer. What was your approach to those classic songs? Well, originally, uh, they encouraged me to not play exactly what Danny had played on the record or on the live performances that, that I'd gotten uh, the tapes of. Uh, and so I they said, make it your own, Tris. Feel free to do that at any turn. So I did. Uh, I, uh, and, and up until the end, if I couldn't help but put my thumbprint on it. But there were certain drum fills and certain patterns and that that were every bit as important to me as the melody, you know. And to do otherwise, just, pardon the expression, but it was like trying to put tits on a fish. You know, it just didn't fit. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I went back to what Danny had done, and in a lot of songs. Had you been a uh, Chicago fan? Had you seen the band? Oh yes, I'd I'd been a Chicago fan since I was 16 years old. Before they had their record deal, I'd gone to see a band band at the Shrine Auditorium called Pro Call Harem, the British band, and and uh, I walked in, and this unknown band was on the separate stage, not even the main stage, playing. And I walked in, and these three horn players are so tight, and this guitar player was just unbelievable, and great bass playing and vocals, and this drummer was on fire, and I just was, who are these guys? And I was asking everybody, nobody seemed to know who they were, and uh, finally somebody said, I think they're called CTA, like Chicago something. And uh, and they remember that show, the, the original members that I, I worked with later, uh, because it was one of their first major shows in LA. They'd been playing the Whiskey A Go Go and uh, had been sort of the house band there. And uh, that's where Jimi Hendrix saw them and became a fan and then uh, asked them to come on the road and open for them, uh, for him. Rather. You spent many years on the road with Chicago. Do you have a favorite tour story? Oh, oh boy, I, I could get in trouble <laughs> even getting started with that. But, uh, geez, 
I wish I had one right right at the at the ready, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you also had great uh, success. Um, Playing with Kenny Loggins, yes, his band. Yes. Uh, tell me about the recording of uh, Footloose. What do you remember about that? Uh, oh. The other musicians that played on it. Okay, that's a funny story. And your drum parts. Okay, all right. Well, Kenny, who to this day, because I went back after leaving Chicago to playing a little bit with Kenny, uh, to this day, sound checks for him are hours-long rehearsals. And so, uh, as such, he had written this song, Footloose, for this movie, and, and we, he was planning on us recording it, uh, it being the theme song for this movie that was going to be coming out. So we, every day at, re, at Soundcheck, rehearsed this song, Footloose, and rehearsed it until we were so sick of this song. And uh, at the time, the band was Nathan East on bass, uh, Buzzy Featon on guitar, uh, Neil Larson on keyboards, and Steve Wood on keyboards. I mean, it was a great band. I mean, all of Kenny Loggins' bands have been incredible. He always surrounds himself with the best, uh, most amazing players. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to include myself in that, but I got to play with a lot of my heroes, you know, because of him. So, anyway, we'd rehearse this thing into the ground. And uh, so, we finally get home and we go to the studio at the record plant in LA uh, and uh, we did two takes of that song. One was for sound and the second one was the performance. And uh, and then I went back and overdubbed Simmons over the drum part because Kenny had encouraged me to do a New Orleans-like drum feel uh, during the breakdown. So at the time Simmons drums were, you know, the big thing. So. You hear those on the record as well. But the, the basic track was a second take. And I remember walking out <laughs> of the studio with uh, kind of uh, my arm around Nathan East, and, and we're both shaking our heads going, that's the last time we'll ever have to hear that piece of crap again, right? <laughs> and then it ends up being number one in the world, everywhere at the same time. And <clears throat> I have to say, that when I couldn't turn the radio dial and not hear it, I mean, on every station, I kind of liked it better than I did <laughs> that day. <laughs> uh, you played with many people. How different can playing drums uh, with Neil Diamond be as compared to Steve Vai? Oh, well, very different. Um, my work with, with Neil Diamond was, was at the behest of David Foster. and. Uh, you know, he, he kind of gave me a lot of freedom uh, when it came to, to he trusted my sensibilities when it came to drum fills and, and that sort of thing. Uh, whereas with Steve Vai, he was very specific about what he wanted and where. And, and uh, not that he told me verbatim the fill he wanted, but he kind of made it pretty clear <laughs> what what he did hope for there so uh, but but both are perfectionists and both absolutely brilliant tell me about some of the relationships you've had with uh, the gear companies over the years well <clears throat> I was with Zildjian for the better part of maybe 30 some odd years, Avita Zildjian and uh, N.K. Zildjian and the Zildjian Sticks and all of that. And I can't say enough about what a great company they are. Um, uh, 
I, I now play Paiste uh, and have been uh, a Paiste artist now for the past 10 years. And they too have made me feel like Zildjian did, like family. In fact, when I was on, on the road and in Switzerland, they actually took me to the factory for, um, outside of, of um, Z is it Zurich that we're in? Yeah. And uh, up into this beautiful fact factory overlook way outside of town, a couple hours out of town, overlooking this lake. And the ancestral uh, Paiste home is right right next to the factory. And they cooked me a birthday dinner and everything, uh, Kelly Paiste and, and Eric. And it was just amazing. I, um, so that, that I have to say, I was, I was bowled over by. And I, ha I have to talk about DW Drums and John Good. John Good and Don Lombardi, I've been friends with for you know most of my career. And I am so happy to see what's happened with them. I mean, they raised the bar so high in the drumming community and in music, musical instrument manufacturing in general, because they, they are never content to sit back and rest on their laurels. But by rights, they certainly could. But they just keep like pushing the envelope. And, uh, and John Good is, is one of my best friends, I think, in the world. He's just the greatest guy. And anything you can imagine in your wildest imaginings, drum-wise, uh, he'll do. He can, he can do it right there in his factory. And it's just up the street from here, pretty much in Oxnard, California, which is really a plus, too. So. What about sticks? I mean, to a layman, uh, thinking about drumsticks, they'll, they'll think, well, how much difference can a drumstick make oh. to a drummer? Well, it's that's a really good question, and it would seem like it, that sh there shouldn't be much, but but there's a lot, and and uh, I have to say, Vic Firth sticks, which I endorse and have for a number of years now, are by far the finest quality, and 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 they used to like like balance them. I mean, actually weigh them and make sure they were this the same weight because, as you can imagine, even though um, there might be two hickory sticks or made out of hickory or whatever wood, each uh, log that it was cut from will have different densities and all of that. And so, as such, uh, each stick potentially could weigh a different weight. And that affects your feel when you're playing. You know, so Vic is uh, Vic Firth has always been very, very uh, aware of that and conscious of that. Uh, you played with many bands and many venues. Mm -hmm. What's the strangest venue you've ever played? <laughs> wow! You mean aside from like the, those kind of bars, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, I have to tell you. This is it's a little bit of a story, but early on with Kenny Loggins, uh, when he had gone solo from Jim Messina, we did a show at Shamu Stadium in Marineland, only where the band played was actually right adjacent to where Shamu would come up, you know, and come up on the the on the the concrete that had about this much water in it right but we were on the the stage above that where the trainers would be uh, it's not even a stage it was just elevated from there so 
that was weird enough. Plus, we were separated by this giant Shamu pool, and then the audience was beyond that, right? So, so we're playing. Here's the, the thing, and Kenny's trying to get the band all, I mean, the audience all up, and he's running back and forth on the stage, and he's got an electric guitar on, right? So he steps off right into Shamu, where Shamu goes like this, and he's standing this deep in water with an electric electric guitar on, right? If he had even thought to touch his guitar or had twitched, there would be no more Kenny Loggins, right? So his, his guitar tech is panicking and he runs up and what's he do? He turns down the guitar. <laughs> he does not plug him. He, doesn't, he just turns the guitar down. <laughs> that, that may have been the strangest gig. <laughs> One of the funniest, anyway. There's so many over the years. <laughs> All right, man, I love these stories. It's so fantastic to sit toe-to-toe -to -toe with these uh, amazing drummers and hear these uh, these influential stories and, uh, you know, the common theme of some of the same drum heroes like Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and people like that. It's really kind of neat to hear that inspiration. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to say is a little shout out. This uh, this last interview with Tish, uh, Trish is uh, uh, really particularly meaningful to me because our good friend Hal Harrier is uh, responsible for hooking us up. Hal has uh, uh, been a great uh, advocate for the uh, oral history program at NAM for many years. So a shout out to him uh, and all of his efforts in helping us find some fantastic people to interview. If you have ideas for us, um, you can always contact us via our email, which is library at nam.org. So coming up next, we're going to be hearing from our final touring drummer for this episode of the podcast. Willie Bam Bam Parker has one of the best drumming origin stories there is. He was very dedicated to the drums and just kind of put himself out there. And by doing that, was able to work alongside P. Diddy, also played and toured with salt and Pepper, uh, Missy Elliott, lots of stuff going on. So let's hear from Willie Bam Bam Parker. My mom told me when I was born, I came out of swinging my hands and crying. She said to my father, he's going to be a drummer. And ever since I can remember, I've been in love with drums. Uh, I think the age of three is when I actually started to remember uh, little things about um, me loving drums and playing drums. Um, I do remember my first drum set, which was a Smurf drum set. <laughs> and um, it's, it's just been love ever since. Yeah. yeah. When you were younger, you, you played with a lot of different church groups? I did. Um, my family's um, musically inclined on um, both sides of the family. My mom's actually a singer. Um, she did some um, some some good things, the big thing, musical uh, endeavors herself. Um, uh, recorded a, um, I wouldn't say an album, but um, worked on an album and then didn't continue to, uh, to pursue it. And my dad was a guitar player and, and, and drummer. So um, uh, growing up in the church, yep, that was, uh, that was my start actually uh, to, you know, playing out. So how did that help playing with different groups um i was about i want to say i was about 10 um i remember going to a 
something they call a um, convention, a church convention. And that's where, you know, all the churches from all the different states meet and they form this huge choir and every musician from, you know, each state get a chance to play different songs at the big concert. That was my first chance to really get out to, you know, be heard. And from then on, uh, after that convention, I started to get a calls from, you know, the different um, groups and choirs in my city. Mm-hmm. So once you knew you were going to play drums, who, who were your drummer heroes? Oh, man. Well, um, to be honest, uh, growing up in Connecticut, we didn't get a chance to see a lot of um, the um, great drummers that, you know, that I know now. Um, but um, let's see. Growing up, some of my um, my favorite musicians uh, and my town, because I had to say my town, because it wasn't until much later that I I found out about the, you know the um, the guys who I love now. But um, coming up, there was a, a drummer you guys may know him. His name is Big Mike Clemens. He um, he's um, big on uh, R and B and on the gospel scene. He was the drummer for Israel the New Breed. Uh, he played drums for Mary J. Blige. He's, uh, Drew Hill, um, Usher, um, and then, um, he was Israel. Oh, I said Israel's. Uh, and then, um, he married, uh, uh, Coco from SWV. And then, of course, um, Gerald Haywood, who was really big on the, uh, gospel scene, uh, out of Brooklyn, New York. And, uh, Jeff Davis were all guys that I actually, had a chance to experience as a kid. Other than that, uh, I didn't know about anyone until uh, my preteens. And then um, once I did find out about the drummers, uh, D- uh, Dave Weckl was uh, certainly one of my, my influences and Dennis Chambers. And then, um, of course, Buddy Rich. <laughs> so those are some guys that I, I got into pretty early. Uh, you studied at Berkeley? I did study at Berkeley, and uh, that's uh, that that story of Berkeley. That whole part of my life is really special because um, that's when things actually took off for me. Um, I graduated high school in '99, and um, just didn't think I wanted to do school anymore. <clears throat> uh, I was playing around town with you know a bunch of groups and traveling the state, um, different states with um, R&B legend Tremaine Hawkins at the time. And I thought that was good enough for me. And then I figured out that I had to get a a regular job. And I'm good with my hands working with cars. So I started working at Jiffy Lube. And um, I think I was working at Jiffy Lube for almost six months. And this one day something just hit me and I I just went into a deep thought and I'm saying to myself, I can't see myself doing this the rest of my life. And um, I had the thought of going going to college. And I think I, w- I remember going home to my mom that day and saying, Mom, I want to go to school. And my mom kind of laughed. And she's like, you got to be kidding me. Like, you know, it's almost two years. You graduated. Where, where are you going to go? And I said, you know, well, I remember a school called Berkeley College of Music that we talked about in, in high school. And I said, you know, I don't know, maybe we can give it a shot. Maybe two or three days later, um, I came home from work again, and my mom said, I got you all audition at Berkeley. 
and I was kind of excited, but then I was kind of uh, afraid. Um, I had a cousin of mine, uh, Nate Clemens, uh, who was a blind drummer who uh, studied at Berkeley and uh, graduated from Berkeley. And um, I gave him a call and I asked him, you know, well, you know, I got to audition. What, what should I expect? And uh, when he started to um, tell me things that I would, you know, experience at the audition, um, I got a little nervous. Uh, wasn't great at reading. And then, um, you know, just um, I think you talking about um, harmony and air training, some things that I wasn't good at. And um, I kind of felt like I was going to, um, you know, walk away from <clears throat> taking that opportunity to go to the audition. And uh, long story short, I went up to the audition. I, um, I ended up getting a full scholarship at the audition. And... Um, I think I moved. It was very quick. I remember I, I went home for a couple of days. We packed my stuff up. I went back to Berkeley. I went there for a semester. I went to Berkeley for, I'm sorry, I went there for two semesters. Uh, my second semester, I came home for winter break. And um, I think I was home for maybe a day or two when I received a phone call from um, my mentor, Mike Clemens. And he told me, he said, get on the train and go to New York right now. Those exact words. And I'm like, where am I going? He's like, listen, I'm a rehearsal usher. They were actually rehearsing for the Usher 8701 tour, 2002. And he says to me, he says, um, get on the train and go to New York to his audition. I'm gonna text you the information. And that's, I had like a little two-way, he sent me the information. And uh, I get to New York, there's a line wrapped around SIR Studios for this audition. And this guy comes up to me, he gives me this, this paperwork and he says, fill this out. And it's pretty much asking me all these questions, you know, what I've done. And I'm like, I can't fill any of this out, you know. And it's, but then it says, where are you studying? And, you know, so I fill out what I could. And then uh, he came back and he took the paper. But mind you, I was almost the last guy in line. Uh, a few minutes later, this guy comes out and he's screaming my name. We're looking for Will Parker. Waving my sheet. I said, yeah, that's me. He walks me in. He said, we've been expecting you. I said, wow. You know, all, all the other guys that were in line, they weren't too happy. <laughs> they weren't too happy about that. They were sitting out there for a while. I walk into the audition and um, they said, listen, we're going to play a couple of records for you. And we want you to play back to us what you hear. Um, there were a few other musicians. They also brought in the room along with me. And um, we all listened to the record. And um we um, played, you know, what we heard and um, did that for two songs. And then they went down the line individually, you know, to a couple of different people. We want to hear what you can do and we want to hear what you can do. And then, they, of course, you know, they came to me and they said, we heard you're pretty good. And just play what comes to the top of your head. And I remember as if it was yesterday, I closed my eyes and I just started to just play all the things that was coming to my head. And all I could hear, stop, 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 stop. And I stopped and I was like, yeah, because I had my eyes closed and I was just going for it. And all I remember them saying, you are incredible. And they said, can you go further than that? And I said, yeah, sure. So let us hear some more. So I started to play a little more. And um, they say, okay, you can stop. You can stop. And um, everybody can go out. We're going to call in the next group. While walking out, um, person that was conducting the audition came and said, don't go anywhere. 
we're gonna come get you in a few minutes bring you back in and um that process went for maybe another uh maybe a half hour and they came out and said we found what we're looking for and then they brought me in a room and they said um you're gonna go out on tour with faith evans at the time it never crossed my mind to find out who i was auditioning for but faith evans was uh the wife of biggie smalls and um you know she signed to bad boy uh p diddy's um label and um i remember um thinking i was gonna go home and they said to me oh no you're not gonna go home you can stay here in new york we're gonna put you up in a hotel and at that moment i knew i had to call home and tell mom what what i had got myself into and I make the phone call to mom, and I remember this phone call as if it was yesterday. And she says, I said, uh, hey, mom, uh, I'm in New York. I came to this audition, and uh, I kind of won the audition. And they want me to go out on tour for three months for Faith Evans. And my mom goes, oh, no, <laughs> you can't do it. You're going back to school in a couple of weeks. And I look at the, um, the music director, and I said, oh, you know, my mom said, I can't. I can't go on tour. And he's kind of looking at me like, are you kidding me? And I said, yeah, I got I to gotta go back to school in two weeks. <laughs> so he's like, you know, if you don't mind, you know, ask your mom. She might, might speak to her. And he he takes the phone and he goes, um, ma'am, no um, disrespect, tender here. He's like, but uh, can I ask you a few questions? And my mom's like, sure. You know, he said, your, your son is going to Berkeley College uh, Music to, you know, get a degree in music and then come out and work in. He said, I'm not saying don't finish school. He's like, but we can, um, we can probably get him a, you know, a leave of absence and then he can go back and finish and at the same time get him some credit. And, um, he said, not to mention that he's going to make some big bucks. I hear my mom said, Oh, you know, well, okay, since you put it like that, let's, let's give it a shot. And she actually said yes. And, um, I remember them telling me, they said, here, they gave me some, um, at the time, I didn't know what PD were, but they gave me some PD. They told me to go get what I needed, and they put me up in a hotel. The very next day, I started rehearsing um, for the tour. And little to my surprise, I was going to meet P. Diddy. Um, maybe two or three hours into rehearsal, the MD says, we have uh, Diddy coming to check you guys out, see if he approve of you. And um, I remember his security guards walking in the room maybe four or five guys really huge guys and they said we need everyone's cell phones and you know if you have computers up put computers down when diddy walks in the room nobody gets up and make any sudden moves it's almost like we were about to meet the president <laughs> um they then proceeded to take a seat and put it in front of my drum set like directly as we're sitting and he walks in and he speaks to everyone and he takes the seat and he sits there and he stares me in my face and he tells us to start playing. And the entire time, I think we did maybe two or three songs and he's looking, he's not giving me no facial expression. And I'm kind of like, is he, is he cool what I'm doing? Does he hate me? And uh, I look over at the MD, he's like, do your thing, do your thing. And I just, you know, I, I felt a, a calm come over and I played, you know, the stuff that we were rehearsing. And then he said to me, I heard you can really play. And I said, uh, yes, yeah, sir. And uh, he said, let me hear. And uh, again, <laughs> I closed my eyes and I went for it. And then uh, when I finished, he's sitting there and he says to the music director, 
He's a bad boy. We'll take him. <laughs> and um, from that day to this day, it's been, I say, God's blessings on um, on my life for um, what I've been able to do so far in the um, industry. So what was that tour experience like? Because you're in a big stage with modern technology and... Oh, that... that I, to this day, I think it's still the, the best tour that I've ever been on. Uh, not to mention that I also, on that same tour, the my mentor, Mike Clemens, who was playing for Usher, we were all on that same tour. So it was Usher, Faith Evans, and uh, rapper Nas on that. Um, and then uh, they added on the uh, artist, a new artist by the name of Anne-Marie, um, who became a really big artist. But um, that experience, that tour experience for me was, I think, the best thing that could have happened is because I had guidance. I had, um, you know, I had the one that mentored me there to see me through my first uh, tour experience. But um, I remember the first show we started off in Seattle, Washington. And I don't know why I thought I would just be playing in front of, a, you know, a smaller crowd. I remember we got dressed, wardrobe and everything. We're all excited. And they said, Ben, take the stage. I'm walking out on stage, and when I happen to glance at the the crowd, I just I, I froze, and I remember him screaming at me, "Get on the drums, get on the drums!" <laughs> and I was just like, so I think I don't know, it just it just messed me all up. And I remember I sat on the drums, and to this day, I cannot tell you how I got through my first show. I don't recall anything. All I remember is just looking at the people and being mesmerized. And um, I remember walking off stage and everybody patting me on the back. I said, you know, whoa, man, you're amazing. You're amazing. And I remember my, uh, my mentor came to me. He said, welcome to the industry after my first show. And um, it's, it's, it's pretty much been, been like that since. So, who are the, the, some of the other artists that you've toured with that you've really enjoyed? The, the oh, experience? I've had the uh, I had the honor to um, tour some really um, cool people. Um, I did some stuff with um, Salt and Pepper, the uh, rap group. Um, I did um, something with the artist by the name of Tweet that was with Miss, Missy Elliott. I did um, Let's see, uh, uh, Warner Brothers artist that uh, I spent a lot of time. I think I put in 10 years with um, Jaheim. Um, he was a male um, crooner. Uh, pretty much uh, sound like Teddy P and Luther Vandross. And um, that was a really um, cool experience to work with him those 10 years. And then um, later on, I got a chance to do Lauren Hill and Ashanti and, and um, Genuine. I mean, uh, there's, there's so many. <laughs> um, also got a chance to cross over into the, um, the pop world and work with, um, I don't, I think he was the, I think he was on the, the voice, uh, Javier Colon, uh, who actually was from Connecticut as I was. And we, um, we actually met in high school. He went to, uh, my rival <laughs> high school, but we ended up doing the, uh, a play together that I, I played for and he sung in. And uh, when we met again, he said, you know, I remember you. And then we started to, you know, try to 
you know, find out where we knew each other from. And we found out that when we were younger, we, uh, we did a play together. And he said to me, it's good to see you stuck with it in that you're doing it professionally now. So, um, those are just a, a, a few artists, uh, that I've had the uh, pleasure of working with. Who gave you the nickname Bam Bam? Jaheem gave <laughs> Jaheem ended up giving me the name Bam Bam. The reason I got the name Bam Bam is uh, it was a hairstyle that I was wearing. You know, I grew my hair out and I had these little twists. And you know, like, um, for some reason, the twists wouldn't lay down. <laughs> the twists would kind of like stick out. So what I would do is I would take a head, headband and I would put the headband on. And they said, when I played, they said, man, you, it just looks like you're hammering. Like, it's like, yo, you know, so he said, I know what I'm going to call. I'm going to call you Bam Bam. And when he said that, instantly everyone was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I swear, it was like, maybe like you know, the next day, it seemed like they put out a memo. His name is Bam Bam because everyone on the tour was like, hey, Bam Bam Bam. I'm like, Wow, like this is really sticking. All right. Well, that concludes our uh, touring drummers podcast this week. Um, listening to a little bit of uh, Bam Bam and all of his stories. Uh, I have to say also a little bit of a shout out for him because he went to Berkeley, which is also my uh, college. So a little bit of a, yeah, a little bit of a favoritism there, but you know. I think he's done some pretty great things to also be featured on this podcast. So, <laughs> but, uh, it was great to hear all these stories and, you know, you go and see a live show and, you know, usually the focus is on the lead singer or, you know, just the act or whatever, but there's so many other people that are involved and, uh, you know, these drummers, those shows wouldn't be the same without these drummers. So it's great to hear a little bit of their backstory and just, where they came from and uh, some of the fun, goofy stories that they had while on tour. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think of um, Sugarfoot talking about being up there and, and watching Michael enough to know what to play. And Michael turning around and being surprised like most drummers don't do that for me. And I think that that um, talent, skill, and um, thoughtfulness is what propels these guys to want to be uh, doing what they're doing, but also uh, in the demand that they are. I mean, look at this list of amazing musicians, uh, performers that they all have worked with. There's a good reason for it. You know, they're not just playing two, four behind somebody. They're adding to the whole presentation and the show. And there is a difference between live drumming and recording drumming. And even though these guys have done both, I think that their talents really have um, flourished in a live setting in order for them to be in the demand that they have been. And I think that's really cool. And I hope that comes across. You know, my final thought about this podcast is what we said earlier, which is we hope by the time you're listening to this, the pandemic is lifted and we're back to live performances. And if so, get out there and show some support. I a thousand percent agree with that, Dan. Uh, I'm just itching to go to a concert and wish I could go to one right now, but can't, obviously. So I'm just excited for, for those to start up again. Um, my final thoughts on this podcast, uh, I've just got a lot of respect for these guys. Being a drummer myself, um, this hits kind of close to home. 
And it's just, I mean, the drummer is the heart of the song. He keeps the rhythm. Um, best seat in the house. You get to see everything going on. Um, so it's just great. And I'm, I'm really happy we were able to do this and to shine some light on the touring drummers out there. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Music History Project. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.